Welcome to the Primitive Initiative Podcast. I'm fortunate enough to have Dr. Raymond Pete as my guest once again. Today we will be talking about planned obsolescence, particulate matter, the green reset, soil, Wilhelm Reich, social structure, digital versus analog reality, morality, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I have Dr. Pete with me once again. Dr. Pete has a PhD in biology from the University of Oregon with specialization in physiology and has taught at several schools in the U.S. and Mexico. He started his work with progesterone and related hormones in 1968 in papers in physiological chemistry and physics, and in his dissertation, he outlined his ideas regarding progesterone and the hormones closely related to it as protectors of the body's structure and energy against the harmful effects of estrogen radiation stress and a lack of oxygen. His key idea being that energy and structure are interdependent at every level. How are you doing, Dr. Pete? It's good to have you again. I'm very well. Glad to be here. Awesome. Great. Um, if anybody wants uh, Dr. Pete's uh, information even more in depth in part one that we did, um, he goes really in-depth, gives a perfect explanation of his history and how he got here. Um, so I highly recommend checking that one out. Uh, so Dr. Pete, once again, I have a few questions for you, um, and I just want you to go wherever you want with them. I love to follow your trail of thought, and it always reveals some amazing information. Okay. All right. Um, well, actually, before we get to the questions, I want to kind of ask how you're doing there. Last time we talked, you had those fires and everything. I heard on Patrick Timponi's uh, radio show that they're pretty much cleared now, but but how are things otherwise? Yeah, we've had several days of rain and some borderline frosts, but the weather is pretty pleasant right now. It's going to be above freezing for the foreseeable future. I see. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad the rains are there. And yeah. I live in Minnesota, so we got some pretty good snow. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty close to Canada, so uh, we usually get it first, and it usually goes away last. But um, do, you, do you think the weather patterns are going to get more and more uh, resembling a mini ice age? Uh, um, yeah, that, that's what the the solar experts have been predicting now for uh, oh, 80 years uh, at least, uh, and uh, it's tending to come back in in style, uh, paying attention to the sun cycles. Uh, but the uh, deforestation of uh, especially the uh, northwest uh, of the United States uh, and uh, burning off the forests of the Amazon uh, to, to grow soybeans, uh, all, all of that is destabilizing uh, the climate. Uh, the absence of great forests uh, just uh, creates an up-and-down situation. Uh, floods, droughts, uh, uh, cold and hot, because the forests uh, were modifying uh, humidity and temperature. 
do, do you think the increased carbon dioxide is actually having a beneficial effect to counteract these things that are being caused by the deforestation? Um, yeah, definitely. It's uh, helping to accelerate restoration of vegetation, but uh, they're still cutting forests so fast that uh, things are getting worse. But uh, the, the growth of the forest uh, during the summer, the, the sunny season, uh, the growing vegetation uh, absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So uh, by autumn in the northern hemisphere, there's uh, quite a bit less carbon dioxide than there was in the spring uh, uh, during the winter organisms and even the uh, leafless trees as well as the conifer forests that, that still have their leaves during the winter uh, all of these are uh, putting out carbon dioxide into the atmosphere uh, so so by spring uh, there's a biological uh, production of, of higher carbon dioxide by about five percent every year, and then a subtraction of it during the, the growth season. But uh, the, the more carbon dioxide we have, uh, the, the greater growth and restoration there is during the, the summer months. D does having more greenery actually have a cooling effect on the planet by reflecting back that infrared? Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, no, no uh, even a small area, you can feel it. It's uh, uh, 
something that happens within the space of just a, a block or two uh, between a deforested and forested area. And uh, in uh, the, the Midwest, where they uh, grow corn, they've noticed that uh, downwind from a city, the corn production is huge because of the heavier rain and lightning storms, which uh, produce uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer, uh, converting atmospheric uh, nitrogen to soluble uh, uh, water-soluble compounds. Uh, so, there's, uh, if you look at the corn production, uh, uh, there, there's a roughly circular area uh, downwind uh, from the cities. Wow, so that's really good to hear because then that's something that's happening even when soils are compromised or, or does that get compromised along the way because my understanding is that the soil's uh, somewhat either toxic or there's all these pesticides that are mineral binders and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, just recently uh, the EPA was uh, announcing that the use of uh, tear gas in Portland uh, in recent weeks has been so extensive that the rivers are now polluted. They don't know how long it's going to last. It's an enduring pollutant of soil and water and air. What is the composition of that again? Tear gas. I don't know what the composition is, but whatever they were using is being detected as as a soil and water pollutant. I see. It, it seems like with this global warming phenomenon that's being pushed everywhere, um, that it, 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 I can't help but think that it's propaganda. It just seems like more ways to control people and pull money out of their pockets. Um, I, I, I think that's uh, something that historians will uh, tend to agree on. Judge see the media... Time magazine and such things were talking about the coming ice age as recently as the late 70s. And then, just a few months after the Three Mile Island nuclear accident happened, and the public started realizing that nuclear power production was dangerous for the health, the Pentagon which uses uh, the fuel, the spent fuel from nuclear power reactors uh, to make atomic bombs, that the Pentagon realized that the public's fear of nuclear reactors uh, would be endangering their ability to keep making atomic bombs. <laughs> and uh, shortly after the accident, they put out uh, the first big a pseudo-scientific report of the coming planetary warming. And since then, they've been pushing that doctrine. Yeah, the hypocrisy also seems to be a big red flag. I mean, a lot of these people propagating this stuff, um, like political figures or celebrity figures, have their own private jets and their own methods of consuming copious amounts of fossil fuels. <laughs> so. uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, everyone who uh, 
um, politicians and uh, media uh, powers uh, are when they talk about renewable energy or non-polluting energy and cutting down carbon dioxide. Uh, they really ignore what the pollution really consists of. Uh, carcinogenic particles and uh, 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 polycyclic like hydrocarbons, for example, and dioxins. Uh, the real toxins are ignored for the one beneficial ingredient, which is carbon dioxide. But they talk about that because nuclear power, they say, produces no pollution. They say it produces no carbon dioxide, but naturally there's a lot of petroleum spent in mining and refining this stuff. So it's, it's a very energy expensive fuel. The, the amount of energy you get out of it uh, probably uh, doesn't uh, seriously exceed the amount you put into it, the, the cost of mining it and, and preparing it. Uh, and uh, the health care costs of, of the people who were poisoned in the process of mining and making it. So the main benefit or profit for them is making weapons. Um, yeah. Okay. I always wondered why they would take such large ventures, uh, you know, and and commit to that or invest in that if there wasn't some major return. So that makes sense. What uh, they they get the consumers to pay higher prices for their electricity to finance these very inefficient gigantic nuclear installations. Do you think clean coal is a myth, or does that? do you think that actually exists? Well, uh, sure, the, the air can be purified after, after burning it. It's just a matter of having efficient filters. That's been demonstrated in 1950, it was the first time I read about uh, using uh, various physical and, and chemical processes to uh, purify coal smoke. So do you think that would be a better alternative to the nuclear uh, situation we find ourselves in? Oh, oh anything is a better alternative <laughs> to the nuclear. Uh, but uh, the, the, the myth that uh, energy production has to keep growing, it, it's, that, that's the basic mistake. If they can get people to accept that myth, then they can basically control the economy and what happens to people. But if you look at the crazy things that are being done with that energy, Transportation systems are designed for inefficiency. Rail transport, streetcars in the city, and railroads, electric railroads especially, are non-polluting, 
think that using regular food wastes to do that would be logical or situation, the more it seems inefficiency is pushed just for monetary gain while masking it under the guise of efficiency and the way forward. <laughs> um, I, yeah, the, the economy has grown on the basis of advertising and the, the, the media has been controlling the culture media powered by the advertising industry uh, so that uh, even even movies are uh, get, getting a part of their subsidies by advertising products. Uh, uh, schools have been integrated into the product promotion system, uh, uh, normalizing the irrational use of, of goods in general. Uh, but everything on radio, uh, television, and newspapers, uh, the, the uh, sales industries guide the public to consume what they want to sell. Uh, none of the guidance comes from people actually seeking products. Good products that have been preferred by the public have been displaced every 10 or 20 years. People find that their favorite products have disappeared from the world. Things are generally, well, for example, things are designed intentionally. Uh, to uh, 
referring to that planned obsolescence, right? They just... Uh, I, yeah, yeah, the whole economy has uh, integrated that principle. Yeah, yeah. I, now, aren't those light bulbs also full of mercury, some sort of mercury vapor? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the whole uh, principle, uh, it was some kind of a conspiracy between the industry and government that the government foisted them on the public. I love how they're called the green option. <laughs> uh, just seems like the most complete backwards thing. Um, so t talking about kind of pollutants and stuff like that, I know you have a really good article called, uh, I think it's called Particles in Context. And what does it mean for our food that so much of this is in the environment? Like w what's happening to the soil? What's happening to the food as a result of these pollutants? Um, anything that would end up falling on the soil, I don't know w which one would matter more, if it's larger particles or smaller particles, but I know that the soil has its own life cycle. There's so many aspects to it, from minerals getting converted to various forms and fungi and bacteria. Uh, it, it just seems like a whole world, and there's just so much going against it, it seems. Um, yeah, um, pesticides have spread everywhere. Uh, the, the ice in Antarctica, uh, uh, mother's milk uh, contains uh, all of the uh, popular pesticides that are just break into the air and put in food. in city. 
kinds of particles in high traffic areas getting into the air, entering the lungs. Weren't those uh, some? Oh, sorry. All kinds of silica, even mm. fine sand particles. Those are carcinogenic, and dust in general. And when you have fluctuations, extreme dryness, and winds, then you get dustier air, and that includes the chemical toxins that have settled, smoke components, industrial waste, and pesticides, and natural silica dust. All of those particles are carcinogenic and brain toxic, liver and kidney toxic, and damage the circulatory system. So the weather destabilization is stirring up all of all of the pollutants. So if somebody says, I love the environment, uh, I, I want to stand up for protecting it, uh, and they think the right way to go is to protest against carbon dioxide and you know, do whatever the government tells them to to help preserve the environment. What do you think they should really be doing if they want to be a person who's conscious of this? Um, start thinking about uh, what the, for example, the World Economic Forum is telling us we should do. Uh, the, the reason Greta Thunberg became famous was that she was recruited by the World Economic Forum uh, uh, to uh, basically campaign for, for their program for the future. Uh, uh, green is camouflage for the uh, these um, new, new in industry uh, uh, forces uh, that want to uh, uh, shift to atomic energy uh, under the guise of, of greenwash uh, and uh, uh, shift everything to a, a digital uh, controllable uh, from above uh, uh, economy. Uh, uh, if you look at, at the purposes and programs of the World Economic Forum, you can find out everything that we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> I like that. So use their information and follow the opposite. <laughs> um, going back to soil, um, there's been some people who are very vocal about acid rain, sulfuric acid, nitric acid, uh, uh, stuff like that falling from um, smokestacks and stuff like that. Uh, do you think, and the claim is, that this is in some way compromising the bacteria um, which then make it so the minerals that are taken up into the plants are no longer what they deem to be organic or carbon bonded. They're just, as for a lack of food, the plant has no option now but to take up these inorganic minerals. Is this, is there any reality to this? I, I, yeah, I think there is some. Okay. Uh, there was a thing about carbon dioxide a couple of years ago. I forget what it was, but it, it was highly publicized 
and there was uh, uh, another uh, anti-CO2 uh, uh, idea, but uh, CO2 uh, dissolved in rain is actually one of the uh, solvents for carrying uh, minerals uh, from the, the soil, uh, 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 the, the natural mineral composition of the soil, uh, carrying it in solution into the roots of plants. Uh, uh, fungus and, and bacteria uh, are involved, uh, but uh, the, uh, the atmospheric carbon dioxide carried into the soil is an actual important factor in providing food to the plants. That's carbonic acid, right? Or is it, does it, is yeah, it something else? carbonic acid. Okay. Uh, so is, then that would be kind of the same way that minerals end up in, like, spring water and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, would it be a big deal for inorganic minerals to end up in food if somebody has good thyroid function and their stomach acid is fine? They would still be able to utilize those minerals even if it's not in the ideal form? Or what do you think about that? Oh, um, yeah, some minerals, uh, your stomach acid uh, will do a good job on them. Uh, but uh, if they're not uh, in organisms and get into your stomach, you have to uh, worry about the, uh, the toxic things that are associated with them. Uh, for example, I don't think it's a good idea to eat clay or zeolite or any of the uh, mineral products that are straight from the soil. Uh, uh, there are uh, lots of places selling what they call uh, ancient minerals from, from seabed or lake beds. Uh, uh, basically, it's just dirt full of all kinds of heavy metals that uh, uh, they say contains uh, 92 minerals, 92 elements. Uh, uh, that just means basically dirt. Yeah, I've, I've seen one of those. One of the most famous is, I believe it's called Concentrace, um, and they claim to be from, uh, I think, the Great Salt Lake or something like that. Uh, and I think they're in the chloride form, like m- majority magnesium chloride with, I think, sodium removed. So you wouldn't suggest that as like a water remineralizer or anything like that? Um, uh, no. Uh, if you get uh, magnesium from seawater, uh, the process of crystallizing it uh, purifies it quite a bit. Uh, and uh, uh, from some mineral springs, uh, the minerals have been... Uh, filtered and, and processed chemically uh, so that they're re- relatively pure, uh, uh, low uh, content of, of uh, cadmium, mercury, ar- arsenic, uh, uranium, and so on. But um, each plant or animal that the food that the mineral passes through before you eat it safer it is because our, if you eat one of those crude mineral products, uh, your, your stomach is going to uh, select a little bit. There will be a slight purification.
gravitational, but still you'll absorb very dangerous amounts of of heavy metals if it's a crude mineral. Where if it has passed through even a simple fast-growing plant, there will be a great refining so that even isotopes of the same element are slightly refined by being processed through plants. And if you have another layer of filtration, for example, a cow eating the plants, the flesh of the cow is going to have a safer balance of minerals than even the plant had. And the milk of the cow is another level of filtration uh, where the, uh, the, uh, the nutrients were uh, pure, purified uh, before they constructed the cow. But after the cow is constructed, then the uh, nutrients are further purified as they form the milk uh, uh, going going into the bloodstream and being filtered through the mammary gland, that there are layers of purification. So that milk is all things being equal. Milk is our cleanest food possible because of these layers of filtration. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I tell people that uh, milk is my green juice <laughs> because uh, they, they like to say, oh, well, you don't eat any greens. I'm like, well, I'd like to think that the cow, you know, does that work for me and a lot of the same nutrients end up in the in the milk itself. Mm-hmm. So um, when it comes to milk and its processing, uh, Georgie Dinkoff, uh, who you speak with, uh, with Danny Roddy, he... he mentioned that the ultrafiltration of milk causes some uh, uh, or a considerable amount of the magnesium to be lost. Do you think that's an issue? Uh, the ultra-pasteurization? He, he said filtration. Well, I don't know if that would be the same processing I, method. I, I, don't... I, I don't know um, why anyone would uh, put it through an ultra-filter method. Uh, uh, I think you must have meant ultra-pasteurization. Uh, pasteurizing uh, does uh, precipitate a, a small amount of mineral, uh, and the heavier the pasteurization, uh, uh, the more more of the mineral uh, would be deposited on the machinery. Would they end up in the milk as, like, carbonates or o- oxides or something uh, like that? Uh, uh, no, just uh, some whatever sticks to the machinery. Uh, you get a slight uh, calcium, magnesium uh, film forming on the uh, heating machinery, uh, and that small amount uh, is lost from the milk. I see. Yeah, I, I have seen the word filtration written on some of the milk here in the grocery store, so uh, I, I don't know what why they would filter it. Maybe it's because some things end up in the milk and they have to filter it out oh. after processing? <laughs> Possibly some people are, are afraid of the uh, cell content of milk, uh, that there are actual living cells in living milk, uh, and those are killed uh, in ordinary pasteurization, uh, but they would still be floating around in the milk. Uh, and if uh, people don't like the 
idea of, of dead cells floating around uh, for some reason. Uh, maybe, maybe they think filtering out the cells is an improvement, but naturally that would uh, take uh, uh, selective uh, higher amount of magnesium than calcium uh, because uh, cells do concentrate magnesium. It's a very small amount. Oh, interesting. So, so you're saying that the bacteria or the organisms killed have magnesium inside of the cell, and when that's filtered, that can cause some minute decrease in magnesium and, levels. Yeah, yeah. There, there are quite a few cow cells in the milk, naturally. Not, not just bacteria, but also cells of the cow. Oh, okay. Wow. I never considered that. That's great. Um, talking about milk and milk products, um, I, I eat a decent amount of Greek yogurt. It's strained, has less lactic acid. I think I've seen you uh, suggest that at some point. But there's also been some debate as to whether the bacteria in uh, these fermentation processes actually makes it down into the gut or just gets killed in the stomach acid. Uh, is, is that something that we should be concerned about, or is yogurt and its bacteria content in terms of like... Oh. Oh, yeah, they, they found that um, even if all of the bacteria in living yogurt, if all of them are killed by the acid, which is usually the case, uh, the dead bacteria are, are still having an anti-inflammatory effect in your intestine. Uh, the, the substance of the bacterial skeleton it, it contains... Uh, things with an anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, so the, the bacteria itself, even dead, it's a, maybe, maybe even better than a living bacterium that could produce lactic acid in your intestine because uh, too much lactic acid in your intestine puts a burden on your liver. Uh, and uh, bacteria produce uh, a racemic randomized uh, uh, lactic acid molecule, which is in the long run much more toxic even than the, uh, 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 the, the, uh, the proper kind of uh, lactate that we make ourselves. Uh, the kind we make ourselves is a signal that can have uh, very harmful effects if it gets out of control. Uh, if you take too much of even the, the natural uh, 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 form of, of the lactate, it, it will still uh, put a burden on your liver and, and consume stored glycogen so it can give you low blood sugar. But the, the bacterial form of lactate um, is metabolized similarly uh, to glycerin. Uh, and uh, part of the damage uh, produced uh, by stress is the glycerin molecule that forms triglycerides. Uh, when you liberate free fatty acids, you also liberate uh, the glycerin molecule. Uh, and uh, bacterial racemic uh, lactic acid uh, and glycerin <clears throat> uh, are 
realized <clears throat> uh, producing uh, uh, methyl dioxyl, uh, which is a very toxic uh, age-accelerating uh, uh, compound, uh, uh, a very reactive uh, 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 molecule damaging form of, uh, of uh, 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 lactic acid derivative. So we could avoid that by avoiding the improper oxidation of fuel. Is that uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, 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 avoiding uh, uh, formation of, of a significant amount of bacterial lactic acid in the intestine. I see. Okay, so when it comes to yogurt, it's not so much the bacteria in there, but the by, the lactic acid byproduct that would cause the issues. Uh, yeah. Uh, so if you don't feed it with a, a, a high starch diet, for example, uh, if you're slow to digest a food yourself, then it feeds bacteria, uh, and uh, hard to digest starches uh, are are major. Uh, sources of fuel for bacteria uh, and uh, several of their metabolic breakdown products of the starches uh, are uh, uh, toxic enough to uh, produce uh, emotional behavioral problems in test animals, uh, undoubtedly the same in humans. There's a lot of people right now using resistant starch or even raw starch to help feed what they claim to be the supportive bacteria in the colon. And I, I know... Uh, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and if you look at the uh, studies, the behavioral effects are, are mediated uh, through the uh, increase of, of serotonin effects in the brain. Uh, and uh, they, the behavioral effects include uh, uh, fear and aggression both. In, in the animal tests, uh, and, and uh, the fiber, uh, uh, which is uh, digestible by bacteria, but resist digestion by uh, our enzymes. Uh, uh, those are the uh, uh, starches or starch-like molecules uh, that uh, cause those uh, toxic byproducts. These people report having relief from psoriasis-like symptoms, and I know you said that polyunsaturated fats can also have a temporary anti-inflammatory response with long-term harm. Do you think something like that is happening from the serotonin? Is there any possible way that it's being anti-inflammatory temporarily? Um, no, I, I don't know of any anti-inflammatory effect of serotonin. Okay. All right. Um... Going back to um, purification of substances and, and toxicity, I, I'm, I'm a fan of distilled water. I, I distill all my water. I have a VOC vent and a carbon uh, filter afterwards to get possibly some of the VOCs. And I, I saw your quote that you were saying that distilled water is generally drink, uh, fine to drink. It's just some of the bad things attributed to it is because with areas with high rainfall, it dilutes the minerals to where maybe the plants aren't as nutritious and they have more cloud cover, so they probably have lower vitamin D levels. Do you still agree with that statement? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, it's best to get a large part of your uh, water needs uh, through your foods, such as milk mm-hmm. and fruit juice. Uh, but if you're in a hot climate 
like to drink water. Distilled <clears throat> uh, water is fine uh, as long as your diet contains minerals. Okay. Um, so when it comes to spring water, I know a lot of people drink spring water and well water. Because of this acid rain, do you think it's more dangerous to drink those because of the excess leaching of minerals and other things that might be leaching? Yeah, I, I think it's important to look at the mineral analysis of every type of spring water that you consider using regularly. And is there a disadvantage to having high hardness in the water or high mineral count? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, arsenic and cadmium are, are the two most, most dangerous minerals. What if it's a majority of like calcium and magnesium and that, that kind of makes up the hardness? Would that be helpful? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it will. Uh, to, to some extent, uh, you can uh, compete against the, the toxins by having a lot of the, the safer ones. For example, if you have a high zinc intake, uh, that protects you somewhat against uh, cadmium pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, calcium protects against strontium and, and lead, for example. Yeah, because I think I saw like the Hunza people, uh, is that Pakistan, I believe? Uh, they have the Hunza water, which looks like milk. It's so rich in minerals that it's, it look, the water looks milky. So, uh, and they, they claim to drink that and they attribute that to their good health. So, but there's. I, I think that's supposed to be extremely high in magnesium. I see. Okay. That's good to know. Um,. Do you know, speaking of water, um, geopathic stress, that seems to be a natural uh, form of magnetic, I don't know if I'd call it pollution, but a magnetic phenomenon, the geopathic stress. And there seems to be some tests that they did in Germany um, that showed that just moving people's beds uh, could either help prevent their cancer or reverse it. Um, do you think there is these phenomenon under the earth that are affecting people? Uh, yeah, there are some places uh, that have uh, definitely uh, odd fields, uh, uh, deposits uh, under the earth. Uh, but I, I think the idea of it being a, a general planetary problem, uh, I, I doubt that. I think it's just a few special areas. Okay. Um, Wilhelm Reich seemed to do some research in these fields, and he claimed to have created cloud busters and talked about orgone energy and orgone accumulators. Do, do you have any insights on him and his work? Um, yeah, I, I've read all of his things, and uh, I'm an admirer of, of his writing in, in general. Uh, I, I started reading him in the 50s uh, when, when he was in prison, in fact, mm -hmm. and uh, my psychology professor didn't mention the fact, it, it, even though we were uh, comparing uh, Reich and, and Freud and their writings, uh, oddly my professor seemed to be totally unaware that he was currently in prison. Uh, but uh, for, from that time on, I, I read uh, I, I think all of his books, uh, and uh, 
he had a, a generally the right picture of, of how organisms work. Uh, he, he borrowed uh, many of his best ideas, uh, but uh, I think he also had some very mistaken ideas about the nature of radiation, for example. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah, for example, one of his paintings, he illustrated light around a glowing object and he didn't realize that this halo effect that people see around an object occurs in the eye. He believes it was something actually occurring around the object, but by changing the properties of your eye, you change that glow effect. So he was very ignorant of, of things like uh, optics. I see. Okay, so he thought people had like this visible aura around them. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it didn't separate uh, what happens in your perceptive apparatus from uh, what is out there in space. Okay. And, and do you think it, the these cloud busters that he used to help promote rainfall and stuff were legitimate? Um, I don't discount the possibility that they could work, but I don't think the principles he used to explain them were valid. Why do you think was the main reason that they ended up putting him in jail? Oh, oh definitely. His writings against fascism. They had the FDA was a persecutor through the drug administration and they said he was selling a cancer treating device mm. and anyone who combines a political anti-fascist message with questioning of the cancer pharmaceutical <laughs> establishment I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Especially today, you get to see all that playing out in yep. front of you. The, the FDA had all of his books burned. Yep. Yep. That's very, very. It's a horrible story. I I remember reading it and watching it. So, do do you think magnetic therapy um, has any merit to it? I know people try to use magnets to bring blood flow to regions of their body. Do Do you know anything about magnetic therapy? Um, yeah, I, I wrote a book about it, um, and uh, oh, wow. politics got involved. Uh, <laughs> I forget what the guy's name was that agreed to publish it, and then uh, I think he died, and his partner decided not to publish it. But uh, I had reviewed the... Uh, the studies of uh, biological sensitivity uh, and uh, I had in fact gone to Moscow to talk to uh, Yuri Holodov uh, who was uh, 
studying the effects of weak magnetic fields on brain and bone metal cells. And that was before I started studying reproductive physiology. So I was oriented through the biomagnetism ideas in my approach to how to look at biological energy, especially in the reproductive system and brain. The very weak fields do influence our nerves and hormone-producing cells very strongly. Do you have any, well, first of all, do you plan on releasing any of that information as a book still or as an article? Um, I, no, I, I think there's, there's enough already in print. I, I was just uh, bringing some of it together. But, uh, do, do you have anything that you personally use or recommend for somebody who might be looking to utilize that technology? Um, uh, no, I, I never came up with anything that I thought was useful. Uh, in one of my first research projects in the lab at the university, I, I was uh, studying the uh, uh, latent latency in nerve stimulation and reaction of crab nerves, mm-hmm. and I found that uh, putting a, a strong a permanent magnet near the nerve increased its latency or, or stabilized it. Hmm. And uh, right around that same time at NASA, uh, they were finding that putting a, a, a strong permanent field perpendicular uh, to the base of the brain, uh, the upper part of the neck, uh, that they could... Uh, affects consciousness, effectively slowing down or blocking the communication between the brain and the spinal cord. But even though you can see the effects and the potential harm, so far I haven't seen anything that was convincingly therapeutic. That's, that's why I lost interest in, in publishing it. So people sometimes report relief of arthritis-type symptoms by, well, I know copper isn't necessarily, it's not magnetic, but from copper, wearing copper, and also magnets. What do you think is... uh, Wearing copper, copper, uh, definitely copper is absorbable through the skin. Mm. Uh, uh, For example, uh, just painted uh, some copper sulfate onto an animal's skin, and then taken a blood sample and found that it had high copper content of the blood. So if you wear a bracelet, for example, and it turns your skin green, that means you're absorbing copper. And copper is needed for respiratory energy and for forming the elastin molecule that makes your tissues resilient blood vessels, stretchiness, and so on. So wearing uh, copper is absorbable through the skin? Definitely. 
Are there any other things that might be? Like, I know I wear silver jewelry. Is that having any benefit or disadvantage? It has a, a, a disinfecting action, even a small amount, so it might, might protect you against infections. But uh, <clears throat> silver itself is a potential heavy metal toxin. But wearing it on the skin as a ring or a necklace should be fine, or is it potentially toxic? Um, it's something I avoid for myself, but I don't think it's enough to worry about. A lot of people started using colloidal silver or ionic silver during this time. Uh, well, I don't really agree with the premise of it, but what do you think about using that short-term something like disinfecting a swimming pool uh, where copper used to be the thing uh, people didn't need chlorine in their pools if they just put a little copper sulfate in the water and that was good for your skin hmm. as well as keeping the, the organisms down uh, silver can do the same disinfecting job but uh, uh, colloidal silver I don't think it's safe, uh, except in the very smallest occasional amounts. Okay, yeah. I, I, I make my own, but I use it only externally, and I found it to be of great relief when I mix it with a, progest uh, a pregnenolone cream and put it on burns. Or I had, I had um, uh, wild parsnip, which caused chemical burns from phytophotodermatitis, and I also found that that really helped the silver mixed with the pregnenolone. Yeah, it, it definitely protects, protects against infection. Do you think it's doing something to relieve the burn? Because it, it was like a night and day difference for me when I put on the silver. Um, I, I don't know about that. Okay. Uh, it was funny because I told my father-in-law that I had been doing that, and he said, yes, I also have a conventionally produced at the pharmacies uh, silver cream that he would use for burns, and I didn't even know that existed. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a standard explanation is is that it's a, an anti-infective. Okay, maybe I had a small infection going on. Um, going back to kind of magnetism and EMF, I I observed uh, some of our pets uh, in various homes, like cats that will go and sleep close to the Wi-Fi router. Uh, that kind of makes me curious. Do these animals not understand this threat? Do, can they not perceive this threat? Do they not have some better senses than us? Um, yeah, I, I've noticed, uh, for example, our cat always cringed when we turned on the induction uh, hot plate oh. and looked at it like it like it was an alien invader, <laughs> gave it gave it a, a wide berth. But uh, I've also noticed that ants sometimes congregate around an electrical outlet, like like it's a, even when it can't be a source of warmth, there's something there attractive. Interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely believe in the negative effects of EMF, but it was always strange to me how sometimes animals would be attracted to it. Maybe 
maybe they're getting addicted to it or something. I don't know. Um, okay, well, well, that's good to know about uh, magnetic therapy. I'd been really curious about that. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you, with everything going on right now, what what is your um, definition or view of the way society should run? I know this is a big question, but a lot of people are trying to propose their own, you know, of course we have the left and the right, but how do you think society should be uh, ruled, or should there even be a ruler? Should we be small communities? And how far does authoritarianism either go or don't go, doesn't go? Um, authoritarianism has been on a rampage for over a hundred years. It's multiplying insanely. Mm -hmm. If you read a significant amount of Klaus Schwab's writings, the founder of the World Economic Forum, you can see that he's basically demanded totally deranged with a, a, a worship uh, of the power that can come from artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the left-right opposition has, has pretty much lost its meaning uh, uh, because of this uh, take, takeover of the language by by the insane authoritarians, <clears throat> uh, uh, the, the whole uh, digital culture uh, uh, it's it's their dream uh, scheme uh, to, to uh, enslave uh, enslave people, get them uh, involved and committed to uh, the. Uh, Uh, 
uh, combining uh, digital uh, uh, processes with his analog uh, computing systems. Uh, and uh, Norbert Wiener's uh, approach uh, by, by the early 1950s had been uh, cut out of, of the culture uh, by the force of, of government uh, grants uh, and uh, pressures against uh, that way of thinking uh, so that the government uh, uh, in uh, obedience to, to these financial uh, powers uh, created uh, the belief that that reality is digital and quantized. And once you're committed to that view, uh, then uh, Klaus Schwab's uh, reasoning uh, or, or um, the, 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 the whole uh, Google technocracy system, uh, uh, that, that reasoning uh, seems to make sense. Logical uh, propaganda imposition uh, right at the uh, the brain process of how we uh, uh, describe uh, reality and our understanding of reality. Uh, you have to back up and uh, try to start thinking as an animal, and then you see the the polarity <clears throat> is between uh, life processes and uh, industry-controlled uh, information processes. Uh, and uh, uh, once you accept their terms, you're under their control. Uh, they, they simply own all of the systems. Uh, uh, Google, uh, the, uh, uh, all of the technology of Wikipedia, the so-called social media, all of these are being censored and controlled from the top down. So you have to back up and start thinking in terms of living organisms who live in connection with and on the basis of uh, the earth processes. And so uh, you have to start thinking of life processes uh, depending on ecosystems and the, the earth, and not on information systems. Uh, and uh, in that situation, Uh, 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 uh,
so just to summarize, just so I know that I got this somewhat right. So you're saying there is basically a, a parallel reality that has been formed by these technocratic authoritarians, and they've kind of hijacked our more natural instincts and just our zest for life and being as communities, just like animals are. And they presented this this quantized view of reality that we have all started succumbing to, and therefore everyone's vision is and, now at the same place. Yeah, and they, for example, are calling the Democratic Party the left-wingers. And they're humanistic people in both parties, but they don't don't subscribe to the the fascist rules. The leadership of both Republican and Democratic parties are subscribed to the rules of fascism, the digital culture I see. Okay, that that makes sense. So let's say people want to eject out of this reality, and I guess some have to be somewhat plugged in to rescue the others. Um, but what would be a new paradigm that we could set up? Um, would we just go back to living as smaller communities and trading, um, coming up with our own monetary system, being as self-reliant as possible, is would that be the way forward out of this fabricated uh, reality? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, direct, uh, uh, avoiding money where possible, but using uh, direct money, avoiding the banks uh, and the, the various electronic uh, money systems, uh, direct interactions, levels as far as possible, uh, and uh, uh, working our way out uh, out, out of these uh, increasingly uh, artificial intelligence controlled systems. Uh, I think we should even uh, avoid wherever possible uh, doing business uh, over the internet. seems that for their fabricated reality to go on, they really need this 5G to take off. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that's the, the uh, uh, sort of the catalyst for the last uh, last stage or, or, or the, the death phase of, of the culture. Uh, scary stuff. Yeah, I am um, really trying to inform people about the dangers of that, at least, I'm trying to find some avenue to get through to people with, and hopefully they can connect the dots themselves. Believe it or not, even telling people about the <laughs> planned obsolescence of items somewhat wakes them up. <laughs> um, so uh, in terms of morality, because morality is going to come into the equation, I believe, at some point, even if we become these um, 
independent individuals who work in communities. Where do you think the basis of morality comes from, or where should it come from? What is the criteria that we can judge morality by? Um, I, in my teens, I, I read Kropotkin, the anarchist, uh, who was a biologist. Uh, he demonstrated uh, uh, cooperation rather than competition uh, was the basic uh, rule in uh, in the whole world of organisms. Uh, uh, cooperation uh, comes first, and competition is is, is a minor uh, factor in, in biological uh, uh, reality. Uh, and uh, I, I think that really is where our, our morality comes from. Uh, on the internet, you can find examples of, of squirrels or other organisms acting with altruism, doing heroic things to save their fellow organisms. And that's when I say recurring to a biological manner of thinking, the analog reality is also the moral reality. Uh, uh, a, a world of uh, well, Christian uh, ideals uh, uh, are uh, basically uh, biologically uh, affirming principles uh, of concern for others. Uh, all, all of the great moralities and religious systems are biologically logical systems. Uh, Capitalism invented the idea of survival of the fittest and competition for improvement and meritocracy and so on. Actually, they mean money-based merit. The Trump mentality, basically, Human value is, is counted in in millions or billions of dollars. Yeah, I I personally am a believer in the Abrahamic religions, and I uh, that's kind of partially what had woken me up, and kind of what you just said to the more analog, biologically compatible view of what life is. Um, but what do you think uh, was the origin of this spirituality, these morals that came about for people? Um, is it indicative of a greater being that gave this to us, almost like he knew that this was appropriate, or do you think it was uh, created by the needs of the people by themselves because they thaw, ne saw a need for some altruistic belief system? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you can see it operating like uh, uh, Kropotkin did. Uh, if you study uh, communities of living organisms at every level, uh, you can see... Uh, cooperation, uh, 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 fish, birds, uh, small mammals, big mammals, uh, uh, all, all living beings uh, show these properties. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, the same 
that's a universal principle uh, that exists in atoms. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the digital culture has taught us that every atom of an element is the same as every other atom. It has no history. It's simply an irreducible unit. But if you look from the analog point of view, another researcher who reached cosmic ideas by studying the soil and chemistry, Bernadsky, he described an organism as a whirlwind of atoms. And if you view it that way, each atom has its place in the whirlwind. And so each atom has a history. And it's this atom doesn't have the same history as the other atom. And old chemistry classes used to speak of nascent oxygen, newly formed oxygen, and its chemical reactivity as being radically different from old oxygen. Wow. And that has been discarded from the textbooks because it, it didn't go with the digital thinking in which every atom is, is simply out of, out of time an immortal being except when nuclear fission happens and that is not anything intrinsic to the being but simply a numerical mystery so I think the ultimately the ability of each atom to resonate and relate to its surroundings in a unique way depending on where in the whirlwind it is Bertrand Russell who did a lot for the digital way of doing logic recognized that we have a basic choice of seeing whether every bit of, of the world, every atom or every person or organism is definable in relation to its surroundings where it is in the whirlwind of life. Every moment is different because of its surroundings and your history is changing constantly as you add new things to your history. So every being is unique in its time and place. And you can see that as a of its being, which is taking its definition from its surroundings. And you have actual, for example, uh, 
neighborhood if if you connect a, a string of carbon atoms uh, each atom has a different uh, reactivity electronically uh, depending on where in the chain it is and if you add an oxygen to the chain, that changes the reactivity of carbons farther down the line. And if you introduce a carbon dioxide molecule into the vicinity, that subtly affects the reactivity of all of the electron groups and properties of every atom in its vicinity. Uh, so that kind of electronic interaction, uh, affinity and attraction or repulsion, uh, that uh, uh, resonance or, or energetic interaction with its surroundings, uh, that gives a shaping influence, a personality and individuality to every part of, of existence. And so starting from atoms and molecules and working your way up, you see that these interactive, essentially cooperative processes are universal. They're the basic rule of construction of the world. That's, that's great. Sounds very purposeful. Um, for I think that's a good way to describe that. Um, I just want to take a quick break, remind people that they're listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast, and I have Dr. Ray Pete here with me as my guest. Um, you can find his articles on www.raypete.com. You can also sign up for his uh, bi-monthly newsletter at newsletter at gmail.com. And you can also request his books from there in digital format. So, Dr. Pete, that was an amazing uh, summary of that. So, would you say then that that those things kind of operate similarly to like the bystander effect, where it's like just being in things vicinity, they they you don't they don't have to be touching; they can just be around each other, and there's this large influence over every organism, uh, even if they're not close. Yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 1930s into the early 1940s, everyone in biology uh, recognized uh, the bystander effect in, in different forms. Uh, that, they, uh, that they called it uh, the, the field, the developmental field, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, psychologists, physicists, uh, uh, tumor researchers uh, recognized that there was a, a, a cancer field, that there were gradations in the organism uh, surrounding a cancer. Uh, but the, uh, the digital people wiped that out entirely. Hmm. Uh, uh, Gestalt psychology disappeared in the 50s. Uh, the, the, uh, the field thinking in embryology and uh, developmental biology in general, and especially in the understanding of cancer. Uh, cancer became a digital event, a specific mutation in a specific gene or, or multiple genes, uh, making a single cell 
absolutely unique and different and, and cancerous, but the neighboring cell had nothing to do with it because it was an intrinsic event in the DNA only. That became an insane dogma that led to the insane war on cancer. Based on the idea of a mutant gene, or uh, uh, in the absence of uh, 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 an intrinsic gene, that then uh, became a virus. And for ten years, they insisted that uh, uh, there was either an oncogene or an oncogenic virus integrated into the genes. Uh, it had to be on the genetic level, because that's where digital reality exists for these people. And they insisted that the genes controlled the cell and therefore the organism. And that's where their digital reality impinged on and destroyed science. That the idea that a gene controls the organism was the same basic idea that Klaus Schwab has now that artificial intelligence will control the world life process. So speaking of these analog and digital realities, um, uh, certain creationists dismiss evolution completely and certain evolution proponents dismiss creationism completely. Where do you view where do you view their conjoining points? Do they have some similar ground that they can agree on somewhere? Uh, 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 yeah, uh, William Jennings Bryan, uh, the, the presidential candidate who uh, was humiliated in the Scopes trial, hmm. uh, his, he was a creationist and a Bible a literalist uh, who they made fun of uh, in the trial, but he was actually anti-eugenics. Mm. Uh, he was talking about uh, the evil uh, that these people were doing, arguing that genes control everything, and uh, therefore there's a hierarchy of beings, uh, uh, English aristocracy down to apes, and uh, everyone had their place in between, and poor people were just above apes, for example. And William Jennings Bryan was defending humanity and life itself against this fascist eugenics doctrine. But he was humiliated because he tried to explain everything in strictly biblical terms, but he was basically on the right side. So in the graduate school, all of my professors were extreme genetics apologists and essentially committed to a eugenics understanding of reality, which uh, led uh, quite a few of them, uh, the outstanding uh, personalities.
me that the explicit details of, of eugenics for Hitler and Conrad Lorenz won the Nobel Prize, basically, had been training Hitler's doctrine because he, he to the very end, defended his principles of genetic determinism of all life processes. So, in terms of every, I believe they think most of the things that are happening genetically are random. Um, but then they also say that the environment has a part in it. So, are they contradicting themselves, or what? What are they trying to get? Yeah, they've been forced by reality to say, "Well, yes, there is an environment, and yes, maybe we're forced to say that it has an effect on us." But. <laughs> In fairly recent times, I've talked to lots of doctors and professors who said, for example, that the health of a pregnant woman has no effect whatsoever on her baby's outcome. Yeah. Absolutely contradicting. Yeah. Uh, human experience as well as uh, all of the animal research. Absolutely. Uh, the, the developing brain is absolutely shaped uh, by the mother's uh, health and experiences. Uh, and, and so that principle is still being applied by doctors who insist on vaccinating uh, their pregnant patients <laughs> during pregnancy. Uh, a, a criminal act which is uh, officially confirmed by World Health Organization and CDC. I think they were even calling for testing the vac- the COVID vaccine on pregnant women. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a crime against humanity to even propose it. Unbelievable. Do you think that when someone is pregnant, and uh, you know the the common thing is that they take prenatals? Um, it, I, I kind of tell people that, you know, you should be aware of your nutrition before, during, and after pregnancy, not just during. Um, do you think that there should be a special emphasis put on those things during pregnancy, or is it too late almost if they hadn't uh, been paying attention to this up until then? Uh, no, right down to the last week. Wow. It makes a difference. Okay. Uh, the, the, the brain should be... Uh, uh, developing new brain cells uh, the whole last trimester. But in fact, uh, there are, are more brain cells in the average baby at six months of development than at birth because they just aren't getting enough sugar and protein and uh, progesterone uh, to uh, support uh, the, the growth and mat- maturation of these cells. And so the potential uh, uh, the cortical uh, 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 cells that, that should be comp- complexifying the cortex of the brain, they're, they're dying out uh, during the last trimester when they should be maturing. So it's never, almost never too late to get proper uh, nutrition. No, yeah, yeah even, even at birth, if, if the baby is premature and you make sure they, they, they get breast milk and a progesterone supplement through the skin, for example, or through the mother. If the mother makes sure her 
progesterone is good than breast milk uh, will sustain uh, the baby's premature brain development. Is it true that babies are born deficient in vitamin D, or is that because mothers are highly deficient? Uh, the mothers are deficient. Uh, uh, they uh, have taken the saying that uh, babies are born deficient in polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, because they have their own omega-9 series uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Those are the ones naturally made to sustain proper brain function. As soon as you start eating environmental pollutants such as fish oil or flaxseed oil, those start getting incorporated into the brain. And since old people have brains full of fish oil, they say that the baby lacking those has a deficiency. Uh, but uh, I think we should uh, uh, take uh, the newborn brain in a healthy baby as a, an example of how the brain should continue developing. Uh, when they have supplemented human patients with highly polyunsaturated fatty acid, uh, they were arguing that this should improve learning and brain development. What they found was that the babies were undersized, naturally restricting their overall growth. It was restricting their brain growth. So that has been demonstrated not only in rats and dogs, but actually in French human beings that adding PUFA during pregnancy uh, retards brain development. So supplementing with these highly unsaturated fatty acids, does the mother not oxidize the, those herself and it doesn't damage uh, the babies? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, to, to a great extent. Uh, they, they break down before getting into the blood circulation and reaching the, the uh, baby, but uh, to the extent that there, there's an excess taken in, uh, some of it will reach the baby's brain. Okay, so the baby's being harmed, but maybe the mother's being harmed even more, it seems. Yeah. Okay, wow. Um, talking about vitamin D, there's been a, a large surge. I'm sure you've seen your surges of misinformation. Um, um, concerning vitamin D and how it's toxic and never to be taken, and it displaces and imbalances many nutrients, including magnesium and vitamin A. I know there's some truth to that. You know, if you overdo anything, you can, you know, cause a, a mis, a different, differing levels in other nutrients. But could you kind of help offer clarity? Uh, what's being said is that you only need the active form, or not only, but that's what you'd be trying to increase. And by taking vitamin D supplements, you are uh, increasing your storage form, and that that is, doesn't say oh. anything. Saying that I've been hearing that someone is terribly confused. Uh, it, his name is Morley Robbins. Um, uh, he, he, what was the last name? 
Morley Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S. He, he actually shares a lot of the same sentiments as you when it comes to uh, liking copper and and uh, reducing iron and talking about iron toxicity. Um, but, but he's very against uh, vitamin D, saying that it reduces uh, vitamin A and therefore uh, copper availability uh, and ceruloplasmin and all of these things, downstream things. No, uh, uh, all of that is... is horribly confused. There are places on the internet now just flat out saying calcitriol is vitamin D. Uh, and uh, the official terminology is that calcitriol is active vitamin D or activated vitamin D. Mm-hmm. But calcidiol is the, the, the beneficial form not the storage form, it's the active form that acts as a, a neurosteroid, for example. It, it uh, affects uh, physiology, uh, the, the function, uh, as well as the expression of genes in the brain and other tissues, uh, the way a steroid hormone, uh, uh, DHEA or, or pregnenolone, modifies the tissue. Uh, it might not be active in the sense of having been converted by the kidney, but that process, the calcitriol, that's the form uh, that when they use it uh, topically, for example, on the cornea, it it impedes, uh, damages the healing process. If you take it internally, it intensifies calcification of blood vessels, and the kidneys, it's the toxic, dangerous vitamin D. You don't want to take activated, active vitamin D. That is is properly thought of as the dangerous last stage of vitamin D handling, which is increased in proportion to your vitamin D deficiency. Increases when we take cholecalciferol. Uh, 
it, it's activated in the liver and becomes the, the beneficial, protective, uh, uh, immune-supportive, uh, uh, anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic uh, vitamin D. Uh, the 1,25-dihydroxy or calcitriol is the form that causes uh, degenerative disease, aging, and calcification of tissues. Sounds a lot like what parathyroid hormone would do. Uh, exactly. It parallels the actions of parathyroid hormone uh, and stress. Uh, it's increased under the influence of, of stress and vitamin D deficiency. He, he also argues that what's going on is that it's actually a magnesium deficiency. Now, I'm not arguing that magnesium isn't needed. Of course it is. But uh, he's saying that people should not take vitamin D and should just take magnesium to help the conversion, uh, all conversions, um, ultimately ending at calcitriol. I, I, no, it, it, I don't think magnesium uh, helps. I think it hinders, if anything, the conversion to calcitriol. Does it have a uh, role? Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the Japanese, uh, starting 20 years ago, uh, uh, have been, been the ones who really sorted this out. Uh, their uh, study of clothal, uh, the uh, anti-aging protein, T-L-O-T-H-O, mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, uh, strongly uh, uh, regulator of calcium preventing uh, the, the calcium degenerative uh, cell death process that happens in aging. So if you're uh, deficient in clotho, uh, your tissues prematurely calcify and, and uh, uh, in, increased phosphate in the diet uh, acts uh, like a clotho deficiency uh, and increased calcium uh, works with clotho to I think I've heard you talk about Dr. Michael Hollick before in his uh, research on vitamin D, and he mentioned that they actually came up with a 1,25-D uh, uh, product for people with kidney failure. In that circumstance, circumstance would it be necessary or no? Uh, I, I doubt that. I, I think it, it's a major factor that uh, is developed in relation to kidney failure. Oh, okay. Because he said he was trying to get their vitamin D up with 25, uh, or giving them colocalciferol, but ended up having to synthesize 1, 25 and give it to them. Uh, it was in one of his PowerPoints or slides. but I, I haven't seen that, but most of the people who write in PowerPoints seem to lose touch with the reality. Too much contact with their computer. <laughs> But but you do agree with some of the things that Michael Hollick does say, right? Uh, yeah, most, most of the things he says are very good. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I uh, There's just been a, a lot of information uh, coming out according to that, and I'd always listen to your suggestions on it, especially with the clotho gene, which I always found to be very interesting and watched several things on that myself to try to understand it better. 
Um, so I, I live in Minnesota, so we have winter uh, for a long time, and it's very dark. So if somebody got enough sun during the short three, four-month summer where the sun's angle is appropriate, would they need to supplement vitamin D throughout the winter or no? I think so. Okay, so it's it's something that you think should be supplemented year-round unless you live in the tropics or something? Um, if you don't work outdoors or if you're a lifeguard or something spending eight hours at the beach, then you might have two or three times the normal amount of vitamin D in your blood, 100 130 nanograms per milliliter, I think, is typical for a, a summer lifeguard. Uh, but uh, people who, who work in sheltered areas, uh, even even in the summer, they're going to have a, a relative vitamin D deficiency. Okay, wow. So, so you're saying that measuring your... Um 25D, it would be the way to go to figure out whether you need supplementation. Uh, yeah, yeah. if you want to find out how sick you are, uh, then you can measure the 125-dihydroxy. Uh, that, that goes up when you're desperately sick. Um, so you and I talked about the, the novel virus last interview, and there's been a lot of reports coming out that vitamin D is helping people with this, this supposed illness or any illness. And we kind of talked about whether this thing is actually a virus or these exosomes that we talk about. But either way, something does make the individual sick. So these things benefiting that individual, is that just because it's reinforcing the whole organism to operate the way it should? Uh, yeah, uh, vitamin D and all of the anti-inflammatory processes are making our energy production more efficient and that makes our surfaces more resistant to attack by foreign organisms or chemicals. Everything that improves energy uh, uh, tightens up our, our uh, cellular structure and makes it uh, uh, resistant to damage. And uh, uh, the immune system is really uh, the healthy living process. Every cell uh, that, that is producing energy and consuming oxygen, producing carbon dioxide, is part of our immune system. Uh, the the antibody-producing cells are another late stage, uh, uh, not, not the immune system at all, but hmm. they're part of a cleanup process after injury has occurred. Uh, the antibodies help to identify damage tissue and in the process uh, they, if a, a microorganism is associated with the damaged tissue uh, the antibodies will uh, attack or attach themselves to the uh, microorganism and get rid of it too but their basic function is to uh, clean up any damaged tissue uh, so there's something that that appears on the scene 
uh, in response to injury. Uh, and if you can uh, uh, keep your vitality so high that you don't get injured, uh, then you don't need the antibodies. You have full immunity at, at the basic level. Would it be far-fetched to say that somebody who's operating at a high level of metabolism and vitality would almost never feel symptoms of anything? Right. Uh, and there are always, uh, even, even in plagues, uh, where uh, there are uh, well, well-fed, uh, generally, uh, uh, well uh, cared for uh, people. Uh, there are always people who are not only resistant to the plague, uh, but uh, don't develop antibodies to it. That's, that's because their basic resistance is so high. So the immune system, the so-called immune system in its activation is actually, a, and if you can feel that, it's probably a good indication that something might not be completely right in your body. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the weaker your system is, uh, the, the more uh, damage occurs with, with less cause. Uh, and, and so the more likely it is to uh, get triggered to produce uh, lots of antibodies. Uh, high estrogen people uh, overproduce antibodies because their, their basic cellular resistance is lower. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, the higher your estrogen is in relation to uh, the stabilizing hormones, uh, the more likely you are to uh, develop the uh, autoimmune diseases in other words, uh, all of your tissues are uh, tending to deteriorate and uh, the, the last uh, ditch attempt of your body to save itself is to uh, overproduce uh, these antibodies which are uh, uh, part of the system intended to uh, remove damaged tissues. Talking about the immune system and uh, the vaccination propaganda that's going around, do you think that we're going to suffer some major consequences from people being vaccinated for illnesses where antibodies or, or some for form of defense was transferred from the mother to the child or to the baby? Um, is that being compromised to where these children are going to get sick at weird times throughout their life instead of the normal times for measles and stuff like that? I think we're already seeing it uh, starting about 30 years ago. Uh, our kids started developing uh, auto, autoimmune and allergic diseases at a much higher rate. Uh, it's uh, an epidemic mm -hmm. now. Uh, and I think that the, it corresponded greatly uh, to the uh, crazy campaign in the uh, 1970s to vaccinate more and more people. Okay, so so these mothers aren't transferring the information that they need to be transferring because they're getting vaccinated. Is that a good way to look at it, or no? Uh, yeah, or they're transmitting uh, defective information, harmful, uh, uh, inflammatory signals. Okay, I see. 
Um, one more question here, kind of along the lines of vitamin D. Um, because we're going to enter or exit daylight savings pretty soon, and it's going to get tar dark relatively fast, do you think there would be a benefit in extending the light, almost mimicking summertime light in the winter if somebody decides to stay up? Uh, yes, uh, I've been advocating that for a long time, that uh, just uh, visible light has a, a very strong biological effect, uh, but visible light plus vitamin D is the very best. And I use uh, red lights or, or the the heating lamps that have the red tint over them. It, uh, it, yeah, yeah. The, the, the red is, is the uh, most uh, uh, anti-inflammatory component of, of visible light. Okay, so my question was then that that wouldn't be harmful because part of me thought maybe I'm filtering the light too much and my body's still perceiving darkness somewhat, so it might be having a stress response as opposed to the clear bulbs. Well, it's the, it's the heating lamps, the 250 watt, uh, but when, when it has that red filter, it has a red tint, which then diminishes oh, oh. the amount of light. Uh, yeah, that's just taking uh, some of the, the useful uh, white, white light out. It isn't adding any, any red to have the, the red glass bulb. So that doesn't uh, start to produce any stress hormones by filtering that light, then? Uh, only in the sense of... Uh, uh, absent brightness, uh, brightness itself uh, hel helps to keep your uh, alertness up. Uh, so if you aren't getting enough brightness, uh, but only the red light, uh, like sitting in a, a darkened room with only red light, that uh, uh, tends to uh, uh, make you uh, slow down and uh, uh, lack stimulation. Okay, so you could have red lights, you just want the light intensity to be enough where your body perceives uh, yeah, light. Yeah, just so that you, you feel alert and stimulated by the brightness. Okay, that's good to know, yeah. Um, uh, or else, if you didn't want to do that, then the good best thing would be to just go to sleep right when it gets dark, pretty much, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, that, that would help to mitigate some of the stress um, of darkness. Okay. How are you doing on time? I just have about one question left for you. That's fine. Okay. Um, I was having a back and forth with Chris Masterjohn. I, I know that you've, you're familiar with him. And uh, I was kind of quoting some of your research and Gilbert Ling and Gerald Pollack, and we were having a back and forth about the necessity of the essential fatty acids when it comes to the cell membranes or the so-called cell membranes. Um, and, and he said that Ling never argued that the cell doesn't have a membrane. And I said, I know, I was just more so implying that if the, these pumps are flawed and the energy isn't being produced enough in order to sustain these pumps, then there, there should be other things to look into, like the supposed membranes and receptors and channels. So can you offer some clarity on the membrane of a cell and does that exist? Are there any lipids there? If you look at the, the history of uh, actual tests for whether there is a cell membrane, uh, uh, there are lots of publications, uh, for example, showing that some cells don't contain enough 
phospholipids to cover the surface of the cell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it has to be something other than the, the phospholipids they've settled on. Uh, but uh, uh, if, if you read all of the publications uh, through the 1940s and 50s, it uh, looks like just another uh, propaganda uh, uh, thing built up uh, uh, to support the possibility that there is a, a membrane barrier with pumps. But the whole idea of, of a barrier, that, that's uh, where the, the need for a phospholipid bilayer came from. Uh, 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 Gilbert Lane showed that uh, there is no such barrier. His, his uh, 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 isotope experiments show that uh, the uh, uh, minerals are, are freely moving back and forth, uh, no barrier at all uh, to their movement. Uh, so the very reason that it was postulated uh, was a misunderstanding. Uh, but then when you look at the the way they uh, tried to present empirical evidence for uh, such an unnecessary barrier. Uh, You see that uh, old uh, medical uh, textbooks, uh, if you had an ulcer, uh, a a burn, for example, that wasn't healing, uh, they proposed different ways to uh, seal it up so you wouldn't leak fluids through the, the ulcerated burn. And one method was to create a false membrane uh, on the ulcer. And the way they did that uh, was with uh, uh, the, um, the, the, the Uh, what 
<laughs> and so they uh, used different methods to uh, make the stain produce a thinner and thinner membrane uh, until finally they, they got down to the present very thin uh, two layers of phospholipid with the acidic ends separated uh, by the two layers of, of the carbon chains of fatty acids. And their, their present staining with osmic acid produces two black layers separated by a clear space. And it's known that osmic acid has an affinity for proteins and fats, but it being an acid, it's repelled by acidic groups. And the picture they present corresponds to the acidic heads of the phospholipids separated by the appropriate distance. But these heads are the hypothetical heads of the phospholipids are black because they are binding osmic acid and acid head groups are specifically what would be unstained and the single layer of fatty acid chains of between those two layers would be stained black. So you'd see a single fat layer stained by osmic tetroxide. So, so the very stain that they had decided would demonstrate their barrier membrane where the pumps operate it turns out to be totally illogical. And at that point, they just don't want to talk anymore. So, so the phospholipid is there, though, or membrane is there, or it's just being stained, or well, the the, the osmium definitely can't be uh, 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 representing the structure that that they show on, on the internet and in textbooks uh, because those uh, the, the black lines uh, are separated by the appropriate distance uh, of two layers of fatty acids. Uh, but uh, osmic acid would stain uh, a single layer uh, of such a, a fat. Uh, so I, I think my interpretation is as good as any, that at, at any uh, phase change, the cell being a living phase of substance uh, uh, surrounded by uh, a, a more or less uh, amorphous extracellular material. Uh, you have a phase difference uh, where the water structure is, is ordered in, inside in a, a different way than outside. And where you have a phase difference, you get an electrical double layer and you can stain an electrical double layer at any ionized particle near a surface where there's a phase change between one substance and another with different electrical properties. You will 
have an electrical double layer. And if you have a, a visualizable uh, ionic material, uh, that will distribute itself representing an electrical double layer, uh, which uh, any simple, uh, an oil uh, suspended in water, for example, uh, that there will be a, a, an electrical double layer at, at the surface. Mm. So I think what, what we're seeing is simply a, a phase boundary electrical double layer, uh, which is sustainable with any ionized particle. Do you think this cell would be non-visible if it wasn't for the staining? Would it just mix in with the rest of the fluids? Would you not be able to see it? Uh, oh, um, uh, yeah, the electron microscope uh, uh, showed uh, that they had many different uh, stains and uh, the different phase properties always concentrated any visualizable substance uh, differently. Without a stain, you would see a different texture inside and outside the cell. Mm. And, and any uh, uh, electron opaque material uh, would distribute itself uh, differently. Uh, so you see different arrangements. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, osmium staining or sulfur staining uh, or uh, any of the uh, uh, things that are visible to, to an electron microscope. Uh, if you deprive a cell of oxygen, you, you see it becoming more and more stainable mm -hmm. to these uh, uh, positively uh, or, or uh, the, the ionized uh, medical uh, metal particles, uh, uh, the, the um, po positive charge uh, of um, silver, for example, uh, will gradually increase in a gray, uh, diffuse manner, increasing in proportion to the uh, oxygen deprivation of the tissue, uh, so that you're uh, increasing the, the electron uh, richness uh, of the protein substance uh, of the cytoplasm. Uh, and uh, 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 in uh, that condition, you'll, you'll be repelling uh, acidic uh, compounds. So the staining would uh, be reduced by oxygen deprivation for, for acids and increased for uh, 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 alkaline things uh, such as uh, heavy metals. Would the imagery change depending on the state of the cell? And it's uh, kind of like how, you know, if you're uh, oxidizing or essentially you're fermenting your fuel, w would that, because then the concentration of CO2 is changing and so is lactate and uh, uh, yeah, ammonia. Yeah. Uh, every uh, different substance uh, causes some structural changes as well as sustainability changes. Uh, uh, just for fun, uh, uh, once I tried uh, uh, fixing a cell uh, for the electron mi microscope with uh, 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 an acid, I, 
I forget the name of it, but uh, it, it was, uh, I think, a six or eight carbon uh, dicarboxylic acid uh, chain with acid group on each end. Uh, and uh, when I stained with that, I found the appearance of membranes all the way through the cell. <laughs> so it looked like an onion. If you slice an onion, you see these layer after layer of, of a substance. A slight yeah. distinction between the, the layers. Do you know what may have caused that? Yeah, I, I think the the, uh, the toxic effect uh, that these uh, dicarboxylic acids uh, were uh, hardening uh, the protein, but uh, as it was absorbed, uh, it would uh, uh, re reorganize a, a layer, uh, and as it went deeper, uh, the, the cytoplasm uh, was reacting uh, sequentially. From your descriptions uh, and your articles and your interviews, I have come to understand the cell's ability and its affinity for certain minerals over others and carbon dioxide having a major role in that. But when it comes to the so-called receptors, how can we make sense of these receptors and how drugs function and how uh, even VDR, vitamin D receptor, what are these receptors really? Um, um, they are... Proteins, actual proteins, but you keep identifying new things that count as receptors. It just depends on how you're looking. A first crude glance with a stainable substance, for example, will identify a certain number of uh, uh, proteins throughout the cell, maybe on the surface or uh, in the nucleus or uh, randomly distributed, that, that bind uh, your staining uh, substance estrogen, for example. Sorry. Uh, uh, and uh, if you uh, change the uh, uh, nature of the molecule a little bit, Uh, but uh, that, 
everything's the proper way is to think of it as a leverage point. And it doesn't deny that the, uh, that the uh, particular molecule is affecting many places that you haven't identified. But uh, the, the most responsive uh, places are called, called the receptor. But, but there is simply uh, a point that is more sensitive than others. If you create an organism lacking that particular receptor, the hormone will still have most of its effects. Uh, uh, the estrogen effects, uh, estrogen effects are uh, So it kind of sounds like a mechanistic way of describing it, kind of like a key in a lock instead of recognizing the complexities around it. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it took 20 years or so before uh, people were recognizing that uh, estrogen and progesterone and other hormones uh, could have what they call a cytoplasmic or, or membrane activity, accounting for the fact that uh, estrogen will, uh, within uh, two or three minutes of exposing a cell to it, uh, enzyme activities all through the cell are changing, but the receptor hasn't had time to go anywhere in the cell. Uh, and uh, uh, for 20 years, uh, they were insisting that estrogen acted on the genes through its receptor, and that the receptor had to uh, travel in and act on the gene, which would then cause the changes. But, but meanwhile, people uh, who were looking at other effects, uh, electric, electrical reactions, or, or water uptake, or activation of fat synthesizing enzymes and so on, all of this happens within seconds or minutes of exposure. But, but the genetic doctrine years to uh, get them to change their terminology and now they say, well, there's the genetic effect and the membrane effect or, or the cytoplasmic action of hormones. Uh, and uh, if you look for any hormone, you'll see a cytoplasmic or, or so-called membrane effect that happens uh, long before Wow. So when somebody says, oh, my disease is purely genetic, do you think there is any genetic malfunction or mutation that's independent of its environment? No. Yeah, it's very interesting. They make it seem like it's just appeared out of thin air for no reason. It's, and then, yeah. and then. Uh, yeah, but that, that was very convenient for medicine. Uh, if, you know, when, when viruses were discovered, uh, they were popular. A uh, person would come in and, uh, with something the doctor didn't understand, and he would say, oh, well, that's a virus. <laughs> we'll give you an antibiotic. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of you. Uh, but uh, uh, when the virus story didn't work, uh, they always had the genes. It's basically your fault. It's something you inherited. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I wonder how they can justify its presence now, its increased presence now, uh, and not in the past. But then again, they say things like, well, we have better technology now, and we didn't know about things, and diagnosis, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, diabetes used to be a, a, a genetic disease, but uh, in Israel, uh, with the big uh, immigration changes, uh, uh, it turned out that... Uh, the European diet, uh, people would come in uh, in the population absolutely free of diabetes <laughs> as soon as they would start eating uh, European-style food, uh, their genetic uh, uh, potential for diabetes was suddenly realized. <laughs> yeah, I, I have Somalian friends here in uh, Minnesota, and they say, oh, whenever Grandpa's diabetes acts up, we just send him back to Africa, and he comes back fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so one last clarification on the cells. Uh, what are these channels? Uh, what is your interpretation of the channels? Oh, um, they would, um, the patch plant, they would stick a membrane in and uh, pull it out uh, with uh, something stuck on the end, which they said was a membrane. And then they could just have their membrane, no organism or cell involved, but uh, they could uh, uh, give the properties of the electronic behavior of the cell, uh, supposedly by the electronic behavior of whatever was stuck on their microelectrode, and that is where the single-channel electric properties of a cell originated. And someone decided to break off the very tip of this so-called membrane that they were studying and look at it under an electron microscope, and they just saw a blob of uh, ordinary cytoplasm. Mm. No, no membrane-like structure was visible at all. And uh, then someone uh, decided to, uh, if it was just an amorphous bit of cytoplasm, they decided to try amorphous bits of other polymeric uh, jellies and uh, with a great variety of different polymeric substances uh, made into a, a goo that uh, was electronically con conductive uh, by, by having water solubility. Uh, they put it in a microelectrode the same way the, the cell had been treated and uh, did their... their electronic uh, setup and got the same single channel electrical activity. Uh, you get the, the channel uh, uh, conduction uh, uh, equivalent to a single uh, impulse of a nerve. Uh, you, you get it with all kinds of different polymer jellies, uh, nothing uh, uh, resembling a, a cell material. Would it be fair to say that the cell almost resembles a ball of jello, matrixed proteins, and nothing's floating around in there like a bag of water, right? Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's that uh, the, the polymer experiences an 
organizing itself. I, I, I took an egg and stuck two electrodes in it and put it on a hysteresis device that measures the resistance with increasing voltage versus decreasing voltage and had the mirror egg white showed an extreme learning effect. Wow. And if you take a gob of that albumin, that sort of thing was what they they did their channel experiment with. The field itself creates organization and creates a conductivity which discharging then causes a reorganization, a buildup of a new order, and so it quantizes the behavior just by the changing field and discharge effects. So, so you create a functional channel just by the way you set up the measurement of it. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Pete, do you have any recommendations for people like me or who are curious of cell physiology and what you deem to be a more accurate version of it? Is there any resources or textbooks that you can direct us to, besides your own resources, of course? Um, the, um, the university library used to have lots of good resources, but they've become less and less accessible. and stuff. Uh, I think I remember you uh, saying in a KMUD uh, Ask the Herb Doctors uh, radio show uh, that you moved to Oregon because you wanted to be close to the library. Do you, do you still utilize the library and go to the library? Uh, uh, no. Uh, the, uh, I, I was working in the library when our old librarian was about to retire uh, and she was installing uh, some of the new digital stuff, and she saw me uh, working with the biological abstracts, the paper version. Uh, there, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, volumes of those, uh, and uh, uh, they were very useful, and chemical abstracts. Uh, she asked me to check uh, 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 some particular subjects so disappointing to hear. This is why I value people like you so much who have retained this information and is sound enough to recall it and help inform the rest of us who, you know, are maybe half your age or even less like me. And I really want to know this stuff going forward. Uh, we can't lose this stuff or people like you. It's too important. 
Um, Dr. Pete, I'd like to thank you so much for being here for this long. I hope I didn't keep you too long. You gave some amazing information, and we had a great response for our first show. People loved it, and uh, hopefully they'll gain a lot from this too. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. You have a good night. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, follow, and share. If you'd like to find out ways to support us and for show notes, resources, and timestamps, please head on over to primitiveinitiative.com.